One of the beautiful, amazing things that God has done for the table is that we have relationships with incredible men and women of God all over the world. And I love that because the table was never planted to be a little insular community where we gather in a little huddle and all we do is speak internally. But actually the table is part of uh, the global body of Christ and really very much on an apostolic mandate to shape this city and to impact nations and to be impacted by men and women of God in the nations. And uh, one of the awesome things, um, George is behind me, this is awesome. One of the most exciting things for Julian and I when we were moving from South Africa to come and plant in Boston is that we knew very much so that we were being sent. Um, that the table is planted out of healthy relationships with wonderful men and women. We are not isolated, even though we might be small right now. And when we were sent from our church harvest in Durban, oh, George is able to hear, but okay, awesome. When we were sent from harvest, we had such an incredible uh, sense of men and women backing us backing all of us. You won't have met many of these people, but they are backing us and they are standing with us and contending with us to see the kingdom come in Boston. And George, who will be preaching to us today, he is the leader of Harvest Church, which is where Julian and I were based the last few years. The projector that we're using for the very first time today is a gift from Harvest Church to us as a community. Thank you so much, George. Um, so this is a house, <laughs> this is a house that has blessed us many times over already. And I wanna say this about George. Um, and sometimes we introduce people and you use uh, really big statements because you're trying to up the faith in the room. So you're like, this is the best preacher you'll ever hear in your whole lives. And it might technically not be true. What I wanna say today is the honest truth here George is one of my favorite speakers. It was such a privilege to sit under the leadership of George at Harvest for two or three years that were there and get to hear him on a regular basis. This man carries an incredible gift of wisdom and insight and of power. And so I really want to encourage you guys, table community, as we stand and honor George, who will be speaking to us, let's really open our hearts in faith to receive the grace flow, the apostolic and teaching flow that comes from this man, because what's going to happen today as he brings revelation is that our lives are going to be changed. I really believe that. So let's stand together because we do honor as a community. George, we love you. Thank you. Thank you for being with us. Oh, thank you. Wonderful to be with you all. Can you hear me? Excellent. Thank you, Katia. Thank you, Julian. Thank you, Jeshua. Thank you, Ezekiel and Eva and just the whole uh, table family. I don't know you, all your names, so I can't greet you all in person, but it's really awesome to be with you. We've loved seeing the photos. We've loved hearing some of the stories and getting the messages, and we're just cheering you on. We love what God is doing. We're excited for the more, and this is just an amazing opportunity to be with you. I'm feeling a little bit conspicuous. Can you still hear me? Wonderful. First time on Zoom in terms of this sort of setting. So, Lord, grace and peace for me as the preacher, but also for the people in receiving. But really, um, you, you know, we just so appreciate just the Adams family and... Um, 
really when they came to be part of the Harvest family, we expected things would advance. What we didn't realize that there would be such an explosion and a catapulting forward in the things of God that we still caught up uh, in the in the just the mobility of that and the moving forward. And so we just know that amazing things are going to be happening in Boston and already your facility is beautiful. I've heard a little bit about the story. So great to be with you here. Just so you know me a little bit more, I am married to an Alaskan lady by the name of Leanne and I got to live there for two years. Um, we got the call back into ministry and I have been leading here at Harvest for I think it's 10 years now. And we've been married, sorry, I don't know if I mentioned that, 20 years. Um, we've got three children. Amberly is 19 years old. Luke is 15 years old. And my youngest son, Mitchell, he's five. He is the reason why at 43 I still look so young. He is also the reason why I am bald. There's a little bit of uh, give and take in that relationship. But I wanted to just start off by um, just telling a little story. I like to start with a little bit of humor. And it's about these two youngsters that were living in a town. And their parents were really worried because whenever there was any mischief that would take place, they would know that these two were involved. It was an eight-year-old and a 10-year-old boy. And so the parents thought, well, let's take them to the local rabbi and he will uh, help to discipline them and to get them to walk the straight and narrow. And so they did this and they took these two little boys. The older boy had to wait outside the office. The younger chap went in first and the rabbi looked at him and wanted to kind of work out, you know, what was their relationship to God? So the, the rabbi said to him quite sternly, he said to this little chap, where's God? And the little guy's eyes went big and his jaw dropped and he didn't respond. And so the rabbi asked again quite sternly, where is God? And still this little chap didn't respond. And so then the rabbi thought, well, I better lift my voice and bellow and shake my hand. And he said, where's God? At which this little guy jumped up. He bolted out the office, passed his brother down the road, back home, into the closet, shut himself away he was shivering and his brother followed him hotly in pursuit and said what happened and he said well i don't know but we're in real trouble because they've lost god and they think we did it the reason i share that is because as i get to share with you for the first time um i get to pick any i got the freedom should i say the liberty to pick any chapter to preach from and so i'm wanting to preach from romans chapter eight and uh, i think it's just a beautiful a chapter to open up with if you can do that and just get your bibles we're going to start in verse one and there's something even in the story of this little chap where we see where we feel disconnected from god we can feel that we're in a place of condemnation or we can feel that we're in a whole lot of trouble and we want to hear what god's promises because i really believe for for you as the table that god is wanting to minister something to you in you and through you so that you really impact and influence um, just the place, the culture, the city. And I know that you called to way more than that, the nation and the nations. And it starts with us. And I love that you've been um, looking at the gospel, what it means for me, what it means for us, what it means for others, the world. And this is really uh, me just jumping on the bandwagon of where you've been. And so we're going to start in verse one. And I really do believe, as, as Katia said, that as we open up the word, that we're going to encounter such life here such activity of the Holy Spirit that we're going to know him working his transformation in our lives, even while we sit here and before we leave. Now, Romans chapter eight, when you look at it, it's described like the Swiss Matterhorn. You know, there's all the mountain peaks, which are impressive and of grandeur, but there's something majestic about the Swiss Matterhorn that your, your heart thrills when you see it. 
I'm speaking from experience. Um, for those of you who don't know, I, I highly uh, value the prophetic ministry, and that's why I enjoy Julian so much. And um, I got a word at the age of 19 that uh, in South Africa, someone prophesied over me that my wife would come from high snow-capped mountains. And so I quickly bought a snowboard and snowboard gear, and I headed off to Switzerland and Andorra and Germany and uh, anywhere that had mountain peaks in Europe. Um, I didn't think to go to Alaska, but the word said that your wife will come from a place of high snow-capped mountains. And so anyway, later she came on a missions trip and I met her. The part that fits in the story is I got to see the Swiss Matterhorn and really it just caught my attention. There's something for you maybe um, if you've been through New York flying over or just taking a cruise around the harbor that when you see the Statue of Liberty, there's something about it that just speaks of freedom. That even though you knew it was there, that you might have expected that you were coming to view of it, when you see it, something grips you. And that's really what this chapter speaks of. It's, uh, they said if it had a soundtrack, as you're coming around the corner into Romans chapter 8, it would be that rocky theme. Uh, I, can't, I can't sing it for you, unfortunately. But this is what N.T. Wright says. He says that Romans 8 is a veritable feast that carries the power of the gospel in every breath. It says if the church would hoist its sails and catch the winds of Romans chapter 8, there's no telling what might happen. Now, I've, I've been praying for you as a church and a community. It's quite easy to get the picture of a table laid out and just the extravagance, the lavishness of the Father's heart as he sets a feast before us, a banquet, even in the midst of our enemies. Uh, it's an easy picture to get, but the picture I actually got was of a yacht. And I know that that is closely associated with Boston. I've actually seen some of your, your team on the waters and some pics as you've been out and enjoying that. But there was something I really felt for you as a house, that you are called to be an expression of this chapter, the promises, the beauty, and the high points, and the influence that it carries, that even as that picture of that yacht, as you would unfurl and hoist your sails and catch and allow the billows of the Holy Spirit's breath to carry you, the gospel would not only be carrying you forward, but it would be carrying you into places where you would allow others to be able to find stability in who you're called to be. And we see this in Romans chapter 8. It speaks of liberty. It speaks of victory. It speaks of expectancy. And it speaks of security. And I really believe you're called to carry that as a house. You're going to bring many into liberty, including the culture. You are going to bring victory where before maybe have hit people have hit ceilings and uh, walls that just wouldn't move. You're going to be able to provoke expectation in people's hearts to encounter the goodness of God once again. And where people have felt unsafe, you're going to be a house that brings them into a place of security. This is what Romans chapter 8 speaks about. It speaks about that our lives can be changed because God loves us and everything that was counted against us, he has done and counted favor towards us through Jesus. And so we're going to look at it and we don't have time to go through the whole of Romans chapter 8, but really it speaks about being equipped to rule and reign in this life and in the next. And I'm going to start off, and we're just going to look at the first part. Now, there's, there's four aspects, as I say, that I want to bring. And unfortunately, um, I can't put a graphic up. But if you could uh, just picture a column that says what we feel, a column that says what God says, and a column that says what we have. I want to start by saying what we feel. Because our feelings are reality. 
and they're how we perceive the world around us and they're how we engage with God. And yet we shouldn't approach God's word on the basis of our feelings to try and validate our feelings, but we approach God's word to counter his truth. So it sets us into freedom, even in terms of what we feel. So anyway, if you picture those three columns, the first one is what we feel. And the first thing we often feel is I'm no good. I've got no value. I've got no worth. And in Romans chapter eight, it starts off by saying this, that in God, there is no condemnation so that we can have liberty. Another thing we feel as we get to verse four, and it continues to verse 17, we might feel I'm never going to change. But God says there is no domination so we can have victory. And that's because of the grace and the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Then we move on to the third aspect, which is when we feel, you know, my life's falling apart. It just doesn't feel like I can do anything right. The wheels are coming off. And then we see in verse 28 that we, and God would say to us that there's no desperation. So we can have expectation that he is going to work all things to the good. And then fourthly, sometimes we feel, you know, I've got no future. There's nothing ahead for me. What, what is it going to look like panning forward? I feel like I've got nowhere where I belong. And God says there's no separation so we can have security. So that's where I got those four points, liberty, victory, expectancy, and security. And so this is beautiful. It starts with no condemnation. And it's like the music builds up to this high point of no separation. And really, it's one of the greatest biblical doxologies. And when you look at that word doxology, it means that you and I, as we apply those truths through Romans, we get to live our lives back to God in praise and in worship. But I want to start off with feelings and re-engage with that. Sorry, can you hear me? I can't see you. Yes. I can keep preaching. I'm going to keep going. Um, but sometimes we just feel, you know, and we battle with these feelings of feeling I'm no good. As I've said, I've got no real sense of worth or value. And uh, I don't know if you've experienced that. I experienced that in this time of lockdown, um, not just in terms of calling. You know, sometimes we can feel a little bit condemned, even as pastors, especially when our whole community is removed from us and we're ministering to people through screens. We can feel, well, I don't know if I'm graced for this. I feel disconnected. It also happened a little bit in my home because uh, we've been living in our home for seven years and my wife has been asking me to put up shelves and I guaranteed her that I would do it during this COVID period. And uh, we've done other things, but unfortunately the shelves are not up and I feel a little bit, you know, I, I don't know what to do with that. I'm just not good with do-it-yourself handiwork. What do you do with those feelings? Well, when we're feeling these feelings, there are two ways we normally respond. Either we can ignore our feelings and um, I, I don't know if you've done that. I've done that also um, recently where, as I say, I was meant to fix these shelves. And so I thought, you know what? I was feeling a bit guilty. So I thought, well, I'm just going to ignore it, but I'm going to take a, a nap. And sometimes we feel a nap can solve every situation. And when you wake up, you think, well, maybe the shelves will be up. I'm just, just hoping it'll take place, but it doesn't. Ignoring it doesn't work. The other is wallowing in it. And Julian, uh, I need to confess to you while you're on, uh, I've, of late, I've been hitting our snack drawer and there's been Mari biscuits and marshmallows and dark chocolate. And my wife taught me about s'mores, which is not a South African thing. But if you put that all into the microwave, uh, something miraculous happens. And the problem is if you start your day intending to be good, but you eat a little bit bad, sometimes you just hit that point where you think, you know what? 
I'm just no good. So I might as well wallow in it and just go the whole hog. And uh, unfortunately, I've had a few of those experiences. But really, what is the right strategy for dealing with this feeling of I'm no good? It's not ignoring it. It's not wallowing it. But it's examining it in the light of God's word. And so often we, we, our feelings drive us rather than to God's word. They drive us maybe to our cell phones late at night. And it's to a different sort of light. It's that blue light that causes us more stress and more strain and wears us down. As maybe we go to Facebook for comparisons of how we think we should be living. Or maybe we go to Instagram to get a little bit of affirmation of someone has liked a post we put up. Or maybe it's Amazon and self-gratification. And we think, you know, I'm just going to buy something and try and make myself feel a little bit better. But that's not what we're called to do. And that doesn't help when we're having these feelings. It's when we go to the truth of God's word and we allow it to illuminate and radiate and shine into our lives, which allows us to live with the lightness of being that comes from living and moving and having our being in him. And so that's what we call to do when we have those feelings that I've mentioned, when we're feeling I'm no good, I'm never going to change, my life's falling apart, I don't have a future. And maybe you're not feeling that here because I know that many of you would be leaders, but there is culture around us and hurting humanity around us who, is feeling, who are feeling that. So what do we do? I want to encourage us that the way that we handle that moment is we look to God for his promises we look to God for the process he's outworked them through, and then we rediscover our purpose in him. So I'm going to jump into voice, verse 1, and we're going to start there. Romans 8, verse 1, and it says, therefore, it's referring to 7, verse 6, which was a chapter earlier, which says we're no longer captives, no longer slaves. We've been set free through the life of the Spirit. And so now it starts off, and it says, therefore, there is now, in the immediacy of this moment, this present moment, for you as you're sitting there right now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because, and here's the process, that's the promise, no condemnation. Here's the process of how it comes about, verse 2. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, you see the law was good, but it was powerless to work good in us because of the weakened sinful nature. So for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. God says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to in Christ reconcile the world back to myself, bring it back into friendship. And where the law could not do that, I'm going to do that by coming in the flesh and I'm going to subdue, dominate and overcome sin so that you can live in liberty and freedom and relationship with me once again. And so he condemns sin in the flesh, verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. I love that the reason there is no condemnation for you is because he has condemned sin in you. That's the, the beauty of this promise that we have in him. So we hear this promise, but my encouragement is this. We need to read that verse as if it's the first time that we've ever read it. We need to read it as if our lives depended upon it because they literally, literally do. Our sanity, our boldness, our effectiveness in the kingdom, our expectation, our spirituality, it all, un, it all outworks from this place of knowing what God has promised and who he's called us to be and seeing how he's accomplished that 
on our behalf. This verse where he says there's no condemnation, it's the exclamation, it's the victory cry of the gospel that resounds from the statement of Jesus when he declares, it is finished. So what does it mean? We have this promise. What does it mean to you and to me right now in this moment? No condemnation does not mean no mistakes. No condemnation does not mean that there won't be any failures. It doesn't mean that there won't be consequences. It doesn't mean that there won't be sin. It doesn't even mean that there won't be any struggles. But this is what it means. It means that we struggle without condemnation. It means that even as the world accuses and the enemy would try and condemn, that we know in Christ there is no condemnation. So we can be full of faith and we can press ahead knowing that even though it's a fight, it's a good fight of faith and that we can take hold of this promise and step forward into all that he has for us to bring others into the freedom that we are experiencing. And because of this promise, God treats us in a new way. It's a way that he has always wanted to treat us because of what he's done in Christ Jesus. You see, all of the attention and affection of heaven is drawn toward Christ Jesus in you and in me. We carry the favor, the attention, and the activity of heaven moves in response as we start to move in God's word and on his promise. So what does it mean that God does not condemn us? I want to bring up four points. And uh, I love some of these because really I've hijacked them from one of my favorite teachers and preachers, and that is from Katia, as she's got such a great grasp of the word of God. So the first one I want to uh, present is this. Number one, God is not angry with me. And even as we receive this, we get to take this message out to the culture and society and the context in which we are placed. God is not angry with me. Let's look at our Old Testament scripture just to bring a little bit of, of the eternal truths through as we celebrate this New Testament reality. Psalm 103, verse 13 to 14 says this, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed, and he remembers that we are but dust. See, God understands our humanity. He understands our struggles. He understands when we feel broken. He understands that sometimes we feel distant and shame. And his desire is to draw near, to comfort, to help, to strengthen, to encourage us. Because here's the thing. He's not angry with you. And it's this really radical thought that we would find ourselves in a moment where normally we would feel condemned or normally we would feel, no, I've got to withdraw. Maybe like that little boy from the story I mentioned earlier, that in those moments, that instead of looking for the lightning bolt, we would rather look towards God's loving arms that are stretched towards us. That when we find ourselves feeling like that, instead of looking for the lightning bolt, we look for his loving arms. Because this is the thing, God is wanting to draw us to himself. And when you think that you're in that place where, you know, he's angry with me, he doesn't want anything to do with me, he, he would rather keep his distance, it causes us to be um, trying to find solutions to how we feel in other places. But it's not as hot. Uh, I remember seeing on Facebook, and as I shared a little bit earlier, we don't want to get our theology from Facebook. But I, I saw a, a story that really impacted me. It was of a, a father saying this. I want to be the sort of father that when my child is facing a problem, a struggle, or a life-threatening situation, they don't feel they need to hide from me because I'd be angry with them, but rather they come to me because they know that we'd be able to find a solution together. 
And there's something about when we understand the Father's heart, that when there's hurting, condemned society that feels that they aren't good enough, we don't push them away. But rather, when we encounter them, when they're in a place where they feel, you know, I've got nowhere to go, I just don't belong. My own home feels like a place of rage and brokenness and destruction. That we can say, I know a place, I know a house, I know a table, I know a father that you can come to that will have solutions, will have creative ideas, will have wisdom, will have grace, will express love and kindness, who has capacity, ability, and a willingness to set you on a whole new path toward destiny. I know such a place, and I want to encourage you to come. You see, when we understand that, we start to become the refuge place that others can find the liberty, the victory, the expectation, and the security that we're talking about as we are looking at this beautiful passage. The second thing that I want us to see that this word no condemnation means for us and means for the city we placed in is this, is that God does not punish me as a believer. God is not out to punish you as a believer. Psalm 103 He's not out to punish anyone, but he doesn't punish us as believers is what I'm trying to get across. Psalm 103, 10 to 12 says this. He has not punished us as we deserve for our sins. For his mercy towards those who fear and honor him is as great as the heart of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sins as far away from us as Easter's from the West. Now, I don't know if you know the houses, but I love a song they have. It's called There's So Much Grace. And this scripture reminds me of that. It goes like this. East went looking for West, but never found him. Guilt went looking for my past, but only found love. I heard about a sea where sin sinks like stones. There's no floor there, just mercy down below. There's so much grace. I heard about a man with holes in his hands. He can hide mountains of sin in them. His smile destroyed my religion and his love shakes down my prisons. There's something about knowing that he is not wanting to punish us, but he's pursuing us in love. And uh, Proverbs 3 verse 12 defines this a little bit more because although he doesn't punish us, he does discipline us. He does correct us. But this is what it says. The Lord disciplines those he loves. Now, at this point, we can think, well, well, great, because I was a little bit worried. I was getting a little bit uh, willy-nilly and a little bit loose in what was being presented. But let's finish off the verse uh, as I read it. The Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in, or as a father, the daughter he delights in. Now, Katia taught me this, that punishment has to do with your past, but discipline has to do with your future. He's not punishing us for things we've done or things we haven't done. But he's disciplining us because he wants us to become a disciple who walks into the full life expression of what we call to in Jesus. You see, discipline, when God disciplines, he doesn't discipline behavior. He disciplines our identity. And it's so that we can come into the full measure of Christ, an expression of what it means to live like him. He is not out to get us. He is out to grow us. And so that is one of the outworkings of what it means that he doesn't condemn us. The third point I want to bring is this, that God does not reject you, that God does not reject me. It says in Psalm 94, verse 14, for the Lord will not reject his people and he will never forsake his inheritance. It means he's never going to cut us out of his family. 
that he treats us as a son and as a daughter of the, of the king. That's who we are. We are royalty. And he is never going to reject us. Here's a promise that the one who shouldered your sins will never turn a cold shoulder towards you. Let me say that again. I found that so reassuring. The one who shouldered your sins will never turn a cold shoulder towards you. It's because he values you and he always opens his loving arms toward us. He's never going to give you the silent treatment. He's never going to reject you. He's never going to count you as not being valuable in his presence. It's this picture of the prodigal father who runs towards the son as he returns and he throws a feast for him on his behalf. Even though he rejected the father, the father never rejects him. He's got widespread welcoming arms. He's got a robe to cover all of his sin and shame and to, and to model out being covered in the righteousness of God. He's got a ring that restores identity and authority, and he's got sandals of renewed purpose. You see, he always wants to restore us and put us back into his destined path for us. He never rejects us. And it leads us into my last point that I'm wanting to bring. We can know by him saying that we're not condemned, that he will never keep his blessing from us. The fourth point is this, God does not keep his blessing from me. Ephesians 1 verse 3 says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ, God has given us every spiritual blessing in the spiritual realms. In Christ, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Now, who is that blessing given to? All who are in Christ. Now, I know for myself, part of the challenges is that I, I want to be found in Christ, but I often want to find solutions everywhere else. I start to look at my employer. I start to look at the stock exchange. I start to possibly look at the lottery. I start to look at social media. We mentioned that earlier. I start to look everywhere and anywhere for my blessing. But here's the thing. Our blessing is in Christ. He will never keep our, his blessing from us. But the flow of his divine grace flows to us from the throne of where Christ is seated. And we need to be realizing and turning our focal point back to him so that we can receive all of the blessing that is ours in Christ Jesus. Rankin Wilborn said this, God doesn't love you to the degree that you are like Christ. He loves you to the degree that you are in Christ. And that is always 100%. I could say it this way, God doesn't bless you to the degree that you are like Christ. He blesses you to the degree that you are in Christ. And that is always 100%. Although we don't always 100% feel that and we turn our attention elsewhere. But I want to say his attention is solely focused on you, on me, and on humanity. Because it says that we are the apple of his eye and he pursues us in his love. And so we sometimes fail to receive God's blessing. But the thing is, he never stops giving it. And yes, there is consequence for sin. I'm not saying that there isn't consequence. There's op opportunities that are lost. When I start to behave in a way that is not true of my new nature, but is reflective of my old nature, even though when I do that, that's not who I am, it still reaps this destruction for who I am. And so I might start to yell at one person in a shopping center and then miss the opportunity to, miss, to minister to the person behind the, the counter that's needing a touch of God. And so there is consequence for our actions. Maybe it's not only a lost opportunity. Maybe it's a, 
a, a lost ministry. Maybe it's a family that's, that's lost as a consequence. We've seen just recently, and in the U.S., I know that you're aware, just in this last week, that there's a ministry that was affected in this way. And I heard this statement that really gripped me um, in dealing with that. I was chatting to another pastor, and we were talking about um, what had taken place as a, as a minister has um, just been in a situation where he's been found out for acting in a way that doesn't reflect who he is in Christ. And there's been havoc and destruction around that. And chatting to this other pastor, the pastor said, you know, what a fall into disgrace. And that really gripped me. Because when you look at that word disgrace, it means you're out of favor. It means God's grace isn't at operative in your life. And really it hit me because this is the moment where I know that God in his grace is pursuing that individual like never before. You see, that's where it speaks about in Romans 5 verse 20 where it says this, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And it's this word hupoparisio, and it means it not only superabounds, it hyperabounds. It goes to another level. It means where we're in a place where we are struggling, where we are falling short, where we feel that we are not hitting the mark, where there's that area in our life where we are feeling weak. It means that area is the perfect target. It's the right now residence of God's superabounding grace. Now, maybe we don't respond to it, but I want to say we are rightly targeted with it. And that's the beauty of knowing that we are, and when we are in Christ, even when we behave like we are not, he always pursues us in terms of who we are called to be and in terms of our identity. And so we pray for that individual and we just declare God's grace over him, his family, and his walk and journey back into wholeness. But here's another way that we can picture it. Maybe we're in that place where we feel, but, you know, sometimes it feels like God's blessing is removed. And here's the thing, even in your, who you are called to be as the table, you see, God sets a table before us, and it is always lavish, extravagant, and a table of blessing. And yet we can sit at that table, and we can knock something off onto the floor, or we can spill it, or we can put salt into something that shouldn't be ruined with that, and we can... We can start to misappropriate that which is on the table. And so we miss out on the blessing that should be ours and is available to us. And it grieves the heart of the father because he knows what we are missing out on. But here's the thing with grief. Grief doesn't mean that you are angry or grumpy. You only grieve when you love something and value it. And you are feeling that there's something that is being robbed of the full expression of what it should be. That's what grieves us as parents. And so his heart is grieved when we choose not to partake of his blessing. But there's no moment where he removes it or he says to me, George, you need to get up and leave my table. No, the table is always set. It is always available. It is always lavish. It is always extravagant. It always is full of promise. It is always full of God's kindness and his goodness that if we would come to it, we would know that we can be fully satisfied in him. And when we are fully satisfied in him, he is fully glorified in us. That is the beauty of this picture of the table. Yes, we waste. Yes, we don't take advantage of. And yes, we not only grieve the Father, but we grieve ourselves at that which is lost. But his grace comes and works restoratively and redemptively and powerfully in turning around our situation. But here's the thing that also grips us. Sometimes we feel that maybe God doesn't punish us. And so maybe I should punish myself a little bit. Maybe I should 
incorporate a little bit of self-flagellation and whipping because maybe I feel I'm not good enough and I've got to appease God in some way or merit his grace. You know what that is called? It's called blasphemy. It's when we try and do the work of God and accomplish only that which he can do. It's blasphemy. And so we are told, and uh, Spurgeon says, that you cannot pay for that with which God has already paid for. It's this legal term that says you cannot pay for the same thing once. It's a, it's a, it's a double jeopardy. It's when it's already been paid for, it is free. You cannot pay for it again. It's this understanding that Christ plus nothing equals everything. We cannot add anything to him to gain anything more. It is all fully available through that which he has done on our behalf. So here's the thing. If God doesn't condemn you, why are you condemning yourself? And if you are in that place where you're already living free and empowered in that, I want to encourage you to go out and carry a message that invites people to, to Christ, that if they know that they receive him and are found in him, they no longer have to feel condem condemned either. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, sometimes we live according to the old nature, the old Adam, and the, and the, the old sinful nature that he allowed to enter when there was the fall in the Garden of Eden. But we are called to live in our new nature in Christ, where we know that we are empowered to live in a new way, because we not only have a new nature, but we have a new manager in the Holy Spirit, and we have a new relationship with the Father. It's the Holy Spirit who does that, it's the Holy Spirit who is that, and it's the Holy Spirit who affirms that. And as we read from verse 4 to 17, he just explodes into action, leading us into this place of freedom that we have because of what Christ has done. And the beauty is this, our freedom doesn't come because we attend a great church, or because we attend a great Bible study, or because we are involved in a great ministry. It only comes, it solely comes, because we are found in Christ. And the beauty there is, as Bill Johnson says, that we cannot have a, a thought of a thought. Let me read what he says, so I don't get it muddled up with what George says. He says, I can't afford to have thoughts in my head about me that God doesn't have in his. I'll say that one more time. I can't afford to have thoughts in my head about me that God doesn't have is in his. How is he thinking about you right now? You see, if we think that we are condemned, when you condemn a building, what you're saying is it's useless, it's worthless, it's not fit for use, it's only fit for destruction. When God says there's now no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus, what that means is in Christ you have worth, you have value, you have purpose, you have a destiny. He's saying, I see all of these things in you. And that's why I'm declaring it so that you would believe it and receive it so that you can live it out. And as you do that, you become a, a showpiece. You become a, a trophy of my grace so that others can taste and see that I am good because of the fruitfulness that is at work in your life, in your situation, and in your circumstance. That is not based on your condi condition, but it's based on your position that you are in him. And the beauty of that when we look at it is that it's the indwelling Savior who has dealt the killer blow to indwelling sin. And that is the beauty of what Jesus has done. So there's no condemnation for you because sin has been condemned in you. That's the promise. It's the process of what he did in verses 2 through to 4 that outworks that, that allows us to live in the purpose of what the rest of Romans is saying so that we can live as a, a demonstration of his goodness. And 
And really the practicality of this is you say, George, that is great, but how do I really live that out? How does that out work? I want to say we need to write down those four promises. You need to keep it. You need to meditate on it. You need to pray it through where it says, I won't punish you. I'm not angry with you. I won't reject you. And I won't hold my blessing back from you. And then you need to do this. You need to be focusing on that. But when something springs up where you feel a condemning statement come, where you think, well, actually, I'm no good. I'm just stupid. I don't have value. You need to balance out that self-condemning statement with a God-glorifying statement. Now, you might think, well, yeah, well, that's easy. You know, when I feel bad about myself, it's easy to glorify God. Yes, it can be. And that's why I'm going to take that a little bit further. When you're making a self-condemning statement about yourself, you need to finish it off with a God-glorifying statement about yourself. You see, we can make statements about ourselves in God that give him glory. And we can hold back from making statements about ourselves in God that hold back glory from God. I mean, he's always got his glory, but they're not glorifying to him. And so what does that mean? It means this. When you catch yourself saying, you know, I'm stupid, I'm useless, I have no worth. You've got to finish it off with a God-glorifying statement about yourself, a promise that he's given, like Ephesians 2 verse 10. So when I say, you know what, I'm just so stupid, I need to finish it off by saying, I, I know that I might feel stupid, but I am as workmanship, I am as poetry, I am as genius, I am his, crea his creative um, outworking of who he's called me to be created in Christ Jesus for good works. And that shifts something, it changes something, it starts to outwork something in your life where you're not trying to live up to grace, but you are living out of grace, and you become a, a, an expression of that grace where you go. And I believe as the table you are called, as I said about putting up those sails to catch the full breath of the gospel and the beauty of what it means to be born and carried by the breath of the spirit. I believe there's something in you that is going to be just that gracious, dignified, poised um, expression of what it means to walk in step with what God is doing in the here and now in Boston. So that, that is what I felt for you. That is what I wanted to declare over you and speak to you and pray over you. So let me just take a moment to pray. And then I'm going to hand back over to Julian and to Katya and ask them to finish it off. And actually, uh, I, I should have said that the other way around. I'm going to hand back to Katya and she is going to finish that off. Um, I, I, I've just uh, caught myself in saying that. So let me pray. Lord, I just thank you for this church. I just thank you for this community. I thank you that they are a, a blessing that has gone somewhere to happen. And that happening is taking place in Boston. I thank you that they are a table that is laid out, that you are expressing your lavishness and extravagance through. And I thank you that you are preparing such a feast that people are going to be drawn. They're going to come from all over to taste and see that you are good because of what you're doing. Our Lord, I thank you for Katia as she's had the vision for this, the dream for this, born in her heart. I thank you that it's born her across oceans, uh, across different um, geographical regions and it's placed her in a place of destiny with a, a, her family and a community that they can see the kingdom break ground be established and take ground as it advances in and through them and so I just declare your blessing over them Lord I pray for every individual that has maybe felt that even as they call to this they're still feeling but you know am I good enough is there worth in me? Is there value in me? I thank you, Lord, that that condemning statement wouldn't wreak 
destruction and havoc in their life. But I thank you, Lord, even as the table is called to be uh, a means of, and I've heard the phrase used by Chris Vallotton, that uh, where they're weapons of mass destruction, we call to be weapons of mass construction. I thank you that that table is going to build people into the identity and freedom. So, Lord, I just pray for those individuals that there is therefore now in the immediacy of this moment, no condemnation. I declare freedom in Jesus' name and liberty. And Holy Spirit, I thank you that you move into action and all of heaven responds to the promise as we take hold of it in you. So I speak freedom over individuals and lord i pray right now and it's a it's a it's a strange prayer but it's a beautiful prayer because it's based on what you've done i pray for everyone that's part of this community now that that in the midst of this moment and this week ahead that they will feel the most worthy they've ever felt in your sight they'll feel the most worthy that they've ever felt in your sight and it's not because they're perfect it's because you are it's not because they've never sinned it's because you never sinned. And it's in that moment when they know that they are worthy because of your worth and what you have done in them, that it's the place of greatest change because that's the place where joy happens. That's the place where fulfillment happens. And that's the place where life bursts forth and explodes and influences a city. So I declare that over them now in Jesus' mighty name, grace and peace multiplied to in and through them from Harvest Church to them in Jesus' name. This is the Sunday morning podcast from The Table, Boston, where you'll find the latest teachings from our Sunday meetings. Find more from us at thetableboston.com.